Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Good evening to you all. I'm very happy to see you all. You're the earliest birds that we've ever had at a pre-performance talk. It's the beginning of the season, and so um, we're starting at uh, 6 o'clock. And so being here at 5 o'clock is an accomplishment, and I'd like to thank you all for that accomplishment and, and uh, realize that uh, uh, Los Angeles and traffic and all of that, that's, uh, it speaks very well for you, and I thank you. I'm very grateful for the, all of that. Welcome to this season. Uh, it's, uh, it's going to be a very exciting season. This is my 13th, and I'm very happy to celebrate two things tonight. Uh, the uh, return of Don Carlo, which happened to be uh, one of the two operas I conducted on my first weekend here in Los Angeles in 2006. In fact, it was the first new production that I did, and I'm thrilled to be able to celebrate that uh, because it is, as I will try to, to uh, tell you all about, one of the greatest, magnificent accomplishments of any uh, operatic composer. Um, I'm also celebrating, just by coincidence, uh, tonight the 50th performance, lifetime performance of Don Carlo, uh, my own personal record. I keep statistics, and there we are. So I'm celebrating that uh, tonight. I call your attention to, don't, don't look at it now, but I always write these long-winded articles. There's one for you on, in your program. You can read it at night. It's excellent for uh, just before you go to sleep because you'll sleep very deeply. Um, and it'll take you several nights to get through it that way. Uh, there is a, that's, the short version is in your programs, and the long version is on, uh, on our website. That will keep you awake because I'm told if you look at the screen, it keeps you awake. So you have a choice. Either way, um, either way is fine with me. I hope you will. Um, I will hope you'll take advantage of that. Uh, th this is uh, this is an opera that if uh, first I always like to ask, how many of you are seeing Don Carlo for the first time? Uh, wonderful. So there's a pair of you that have seen it before. So this will be a little this will be a little bit redundant for you. But for those of you who are discovering it, um, I envy you because I remember the first time that I saw it, and uh, it's it's an uh, unforgettable experience. Uh, it's anybody hearing a Verdi opera for the first time? I should ask you that too. You are good. That's too okay. Very good. As you see, Verdi is very popular, so you're going to have to catch up now. We, we expect you to catch up. Uh, Verdi, uh, Verdi's operas are beloved by uh, by most of the world. A lot of it for their beautiful romanticism and for the love stories. There is not a Verdi opera that does not have a love story. But what distinguishes Don Carlo is. It, it, there is a love story in it uh, with all that comes with that, but when the story is uh, about the king of Spain at the height of the Spanish Empire and his son and his uh, now third, the king's third wife who has been in love with the son and the son with her, uh, she's a, she, and she is a French princess, uh, you get different dimensions. When uh, the prince, Don Carlo's best friend, is in fact an idealist who is, uh, who is defending Enlightenment-aged uh, uh, concepts of freedom and liberty, the same that we've formed our own country with, um, it complicates the mix. When the, uh, when the 
enemy of all of them is none less than the Grand Inquisitor. So you have a very interesting group of people. So it's not your normal family uh, squabble. It's, they're big stakes. Now, I, I often quote uh, to you, George Bernard Shaw said, Italian opera is about a soprano who wants to make love to a tenor, and a tenor who wants to make love to her, and a baritone who doesn't want to let them do that. <laughs> now, if you go through, if you go through, it actually is, applies, and it applies sort of to this opera, but there's a notable exception in this opera. Um, there is usually a bass voice, a low voice, and those low voices are either uh, kings, czars, uh, generals, fathers, old men. Uh, they sometimes get in the way of the soprano and the tenor. Um, there are three of them in this opera. There are three basses. Um, they are not, they are fathers but they are also kings and emperors uh, and inquisitors. And yes, they will get in, they will get in the way. Uh, so it has, in one respect, some, some of the normal, uh, the normal trappings of an Italian opera. But there's something totally different about this opera. And I think that's what explains its, uh, its grandeur. First, it was written uh, for Paris in French. And that is uh, for Verdi uncommon. He only wrote two operas in French. The first one was called The Sicilian Vespers, and it was subsequently uh, translated into Italian, as was Don Carlo. Tonight, you're going to hear Don Carlo in Italian, because for the most part, that is the version that most of the world knows. But I'm going to explain to you the complications of all the versions and why we've picked this particular one um, in a moment. But Verdi had to write for the expectations of the French public. And um, by the time he wrote this, um, which is 1867, uh, he's been writing operas for 20 years. And he became a world figure in those 20 years, uh, over 20 years, actually. And uh, he wanted a commission in Paris. It was a prestigious thing. But there were expectations. Now, this is the era of the, what's, what the French called Grand Opera. Um, now, didn't you think all opera was grand? Doesn't everybody talk about grand opera? Uh, yes, but this is a specific term, Grand Opera, which refers to a period, 1820 up until the 1850s, um, even 1860s, in France. And it was character, uh, characterized by great enormous sets and costumes and sceneries and grandiosity and uh, great crowd scenes. Uh, history, historical subjects were preferred. That's one of the reasons that Don Carlo fit the bill because this is, uh, this is based on historical uh, characters and, uh, and a history that is partially, uh, partially true. And so Verdi was able to do that. He also had to write a ballet. He will not be seeing a ballet tonight. Uh, the opera without the ballet is already the longest Verdi opera there is. So uh, no ballet tonight. But if you really, really want to see the ballet, you'll have to find some city in the world who right now is producing it in French with the ballets. Now, Verdi had to write five acts because every uh, piece of theater in France had to have five acts. Why? because it did. 
From the time of Racine, Moliere, Beaumarchais, five acts it was, and all French operas were in five acts, and even to the end of the century, even Debussy, who wrote an anti-opera, a non-opera, Peleus and Mélisande, it's in five acts. Verdi was a little less comfortable with this because he was a composer who liked concision. He liked to get to the point. He didn't like things that were excessively long. And yet he had to fulfill this big formula of five acts and, the, um, and all of the stage trappings. Uh, so he wrote, uh, he wrote it in five acts in French, after which time it was translated into Italian because as it traveled around the world, uh, other opera companies generally sang in Italian, even if that was Vienna, Germ uh, Germany, or in England. Italian was the language for most operas. The original version of Don Carlo uh, in five acts was in French, and it was so long that at the dress rehearsal they had to make cuts between the dress rehearsal and the, and the opening night. And then as soon as it started to travel around the world, everybody started making cuts. And this irritated Verdi, and he said, okay, if they're all going to cut it, I'm going to cut it. Going to do it my way. So after, uh, after several years, he decided to produce a version that was only four acts. And how did he accomplish that? By taking out the first act. Terrible thing, I hear you cry. Uh, yes and no. The, the first act is beautiful music, but it is actually unnecessary for, the, uh, for the, the crux of the drama. And I'm going to tell you about the crux of the drama, and then maybe you'll agree with me about that. Uh, so we have the royal family of, uh, of Spain. Now, King Philip II is the king. He has married, to make peace between Spain and France, a young, the young princess, the young daughter of the king of France, and her name is Elisabeth, Elisabeth de Valois. That's, and you will meet Elisabeth because she is our heroine. Now, before he married her, he had actually, he had a wife. Uh, she happened to be Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary. Uh, she was his wife, yes. Uh, she never came to Spain, apparently. She stayed in England the whole time. But it was supposed to buy peace between Spain and England. So when she died, he needed another wife. Uh, he needed to, as all kings do, they want as many children to get as many sons as possible to assure the, um, the continuation of the family and the line. And he was not so happy with Don Carlo because Don Carlo was a very difficult and troubled boy. So he wants to... He, uh, he has already decided, well, Don Carlo will be well married to the, da the, the daughter of the king. That will make peace. But then Mary Tudor dies, and he decides, you know what? I'm going to marry her myself. And that's what our opera is all about. Because in the opera, they had already fallen in love. Don Carlo, son of the king, and Elizabeth fall in love in the scene, the first act, that is called Fontainebleau, because it takes place in the forest of Fontainebleau, not far from Paris. And they cut this scene, he cut it out, because the reminiscence of this scene is actually just as powerful as actually seeing it. Now, um, he also felt, he also made other various changes. But the, um, the, the, the whole point was to get, the, get to the crux of the drama. So uh, here we are, try to follow this now. It's a little complicated at first, but it'll clarify itself. Uh, we have our soprano. We're going to have our soprano and tenor are in love. The soprano, his name is Elizabeth. She is the daughter of the King of France, and she is now married to King Philip, but they did fall in love before. We have Don Carlo, 
who is the son of Philip, who that means he's the son to the king, and that means he is the heir to the throne. But he's a very troubled young man, very emotional. In fact, the historic Don Carlo was actually uh, was said to be disturbed, given to great violence and great mood swings, and uh, he never was able to really uh, organize his life. He was not, never able to be calm. And eventually, Philip put him in jail. He had to imprison his own son. He died in jail. And that um, was, at the time, believed by some people to have been a plot by King Philip to get rid of his son. Now, none of that's going to happen in the opera. Don Carlo in the opera is a tenor, and therefore he is a hero. He is handsome. He is in love. We like him. We want him to be together with Elizabeth. Elizabeth is, wants to be with Carlo, or wanted to be with Don Carlo, but she is a person who recognizes duty, uh, and so she is now the queen of Spain, and she will not entertain any temptation on the part of Don Carlos. He is less able to control his emotions, but she tries to school him in that, to, to learn to accept their fate. And that's going, to be, uh, that's going to be their story. So we've got King Philip with his troubled son and his beautiful young wife who loves the son, but that love is not going to be ever realized. Um, now, that's, that's part of the, um, that's the first, that's the first complicated triangle there. Father, wife, son. Looks a little bit like Oedipus. Bear that in mind. Now we have another interesting triangle. When there is a second woman, a second soprano, or a so-called mezzo-soprano, they are like the baritones. They don't want the tenor and the soprano to make love to each other. So there, she is a rival, and that is the, the classic function of the second soprano in most Italian operas. And so her name is the Princess of Eboli. She is beautiful. She is in the court. She is one of the, uh, the handmaidens of the queen. She is an intrigante. Uh, she existed. She's also a real person. She had a patch on her eye. So our Eboli tonight will have a patch on her eye. She's of no, uh, no relation to Votan, in case of any of you friends from the ring who she, that has nothing to do with Votan. Um, she had a patch on her eye. That's all. We don't know why, but she did. Now, she, of course, is also in love, although it is a very self-interested love, in, with Don Carlo. So you now have a third triangle. You have the triangle, a second triangle. You have Don Carlo, and you have the two women. So you have another love triangle. And then there's another interesting triangle. The baritone in this opera, and the baritone tonight is none other than Placido Domingo, the baritone is, in fact, a friend, the closest friend of Don Carlo. This makes it an exception in most of the operas and the entire output of Verdi because it's never that way. The, the, father, the baritone is a father, he's something else. He is somehow opposed to the tenor. Not in this opera. They is his closest confidant. These are, these are um, Rodrigo is his first name. He is the mar the, the Marquis of Posa, Marquesa di Posa. They grew up together since childhood, and they are very close. And so 
This creates um, a new situation for Verdi and gives him a new opportunity to express music between a tenor and a baritone that is uncommon. They are very close to each other, and bearing in mind that one is the son of a king and the best friend, we are cannot help but think of Saul and his son uh, Jonathan, uh, David and Jonathan, the great friends from the Bible. And there is a reference in the, from, the, from the book of, uh, from Samuel and Saul that will be referred to in the third act of the opera. So there's another triangle there, the, the very close relationship of the two young men, one of them in conflict with his father. So uh, now we've got a mezzo-soprano uh, who's vying for the love of Don Carlo. We have uh, a tenor and soprano who want to make love but can't. Uh, we have a father who is angry at his son and a son who is angry at his father. And then we have another very interesting low voice. And he is a bass voice also. He appears at the beginning of the opera, mysteriously, and he will appear at the end of the opera. And he is in a monastery, and he is dressed as a monk, or he is a monk. And it is commonly believed that this monk is walking around the tomb of King Philip II's father, who was known as Charles V, or Carlo V. He is a very famous monarch. He was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. So he's died, supposedly, several years ago. And uh, there was a legend that his ghost used to wander around where his tomb was. And so you're going to see him right at the beginning of the opera. Now, it was also said that uh, King, uh, 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 the Charles V, when he, when he abdicated because he was getting old and he was getting tired of the affairs of state, he abdicated, gave the kingdom to his son, Philip, and he stayed in the, con uh, in the monastery for a few years waiting to, uh, basically waiting to die. But it is also said that he staged his own death in order to get rid of his enemies so that he would feel safer and, so th and, and be, be left in peace. So it's not quite sure if this monk who's wandering around in Act 1 and in Act 4 is, is he Charles? Is he the ghost of Charles? If you can't figure it out, don't worry because there's a letter from Verdi where he writes to his librettist, and he says, I'm paraphrasing, I don't quite get it. Is this Charles V or is this his ghost? <laughs> they never quite figured it out either. So you have your choice. You can believe it either way. I think in our production, we've sort of made a choice. I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but you can sort of figure it out. But Charles V is sympathetic to his grandson, and that is important because he is going to try to save him at the end of the opera. I'm not going to tell you more than that. But his presence is a very important presence. So you now have three generations, Charles V, King Philip, and Don Carlo, three generations of Spanish monarchs um, as protagonists in this opera. And then there's another base. Um, he's not just an ordinary priest. He's the Grand Inquisitor. Now, the Inquisition was terribly powerful at the time. And what we're going to see is a conflict of state and church, because we're going to see in one magnificent scene that King Philip and the Grand Inquisitor will come to blows with each other because of, a, of the individual, 
Marquis de Posa, because the king wants him as his friend, and the inquisitor says, no, he's a heretic, he's protecting the Protestants in the north, uh, north of Europe, uh, he's a revolutionary, he's dangerous, we want him, we want to kill him. And the inquisitor makes the king bend to his will. Um, and that is one of the greatest scenes in any opera. I would say that if I had to pick one of the most unique scenes in all of uh, Italian opera, if not all of opera, it is a confrontation between King Philip and the Grand Inquisitor. Um, so now you have, you, you have the background, who are all these people, and what are the, how are they going to interact? The plot is set up full of conflicts, and conflicts is how we make a great drama um, or a great opera. Now, I want to say that opera is not history. Opera, and by opera I mean operatic composers and those who wrote texts, have never felt obliged to be faithful to their sources. In other words, it doesn't matter to Giuseppe Verdi whether historically these events happened. It matters that he is able to use them and make a coherent drama and, and music that, that lives well with that drama. Uh, that's not just Giuseppe Verdi, that's almost all operatic composers. Uh, the history was for them a muse, or the novel that they are writing about is a muse. It is a, be it is a beginning, it is a starting point, and every composer has taken out of that what he or she needed in order to make their opera. And Verdi is no different. Now, Verdi's source happens in this case to be a very exalted, high, uh, I would say high market source. And that is, this is a play by Friedrich Schiller, one of the great, great uh, authors, poets, and dramatists of German literature. Now, most of you all know the Beethoven Ninth. You've certainly heard the Ode to Joy. That was by that was written by Friedrich Schiller. That's how important he was. Beethoven adored him and wanted to emulate him. He was interested, Schiller was interested in all of the enlightenment concepts that founded our country. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, uh, democratically treating all peoples fairly. He was opposed to uh, oppression. He was opposed to the monarchy. That was Schiller. Beethoven bought into that, and Verdi himself uh, found that very congenial. Verdi himself believed, as you know, he was a great hero of the unification of Italy. He was against foreign domination. So the character of the Marquis of Posa is, in some respects, um, a mouthpiece for Schiller himself and becomes a mouthpiece for Verdi. Now, Schiller himself was not writing history either. He was adapting history, and it started at the beginning. He based his story on a French writer who was you no know, Abbe de Saint-Réal, who wrote the first romanticized version of Don Carlo, Elizabeth, and Philip. Most of it was an exaggeration or plain, uh, just simply not true. But it made a great story. This is so. If you want to know about King Philip and, and Elizabeth, actually, it was a very good marriage. Uh, they seemed to love each other, and King Philip was, was very kind to her and loved her and was very uh, grieved at her death. There is no evidence whatsoever that Elizabeth and Don Carlo were in love. It seems to be so that she, who had a very special personality, uh, was able to 
was able to speak to him and that he was able to feel confident in her that they got along well, but there is no evidence, zero evidence, that there was any erotic or romantic love relationship between the two of them. Um, so you see how history is, history start right away. The first stories that were retellings were far, getting farther away from history. Schiller is another step, and Verdi is a third step. So you're not gonna, if you wanna read history, Go home, get online, and read, read, read what you can find online. It's a very interesting period. This is not history, but they are historical characters. Now, um, but lots of operas are written about historical characters, queens, kings, popes, uh, czars, and all that. Um, but they are very often just trappings for the same old story, you know, some love story. And this is only different in that it is on such an exalted level, and the, gen the level of genius of Verdi is so extraordinary that he himself is able uh, to dignify and to ennoble this whole story um, in a way that many other composers uh, would not have been able to to do that. So we um, have this, we have the, um, I, I come back to the question of the uh, advantages or disadvantages of the two versions. I prefer uh, the four-act version because we are going to begin the opera in a monastery, and this is at the tomb of Charles V. We're going to meet that monk whether he be Charles V still alive or whether he be the ghost of Charles V, we don't know. But we're going to meet him at the beginning. And it sets the tone for the entire opera because this is a, an opera where we are profoundly aware of the presence, the omnipresence of the supernatural. And so I think that that monastery monks, monk feeling, the, the tomb, the magnificent tomb of, Char of Charles V sets the tone. And we're going to close the opera there. And this makes wonderful bookends. And that's why I personally find that stronger than the inclusion of the first act. Now, that being said, if I got another chance to do the first act, I would do it. I've done, I don't know, eight, or eight, eight productions or so of Don Carlo, um, or at least eight times around. I've only done the Fontainebleau scene once. And um, uh, I would do it again. Would I do it in French if I had a chance? Yes, I would. Why don't I prefer French? Because for me, uh, despite the fact it's original, and there are those who will argue it's original, therefore you should do it, I find a sort of dissonance between the uh, beauty and tenor of the French language and the very Italian music and nature of Giuseppe Verdi's music. So, I mean, I find that they don't fit so well together. Verdi did not speak French. Um, he could manage in it, but his wife did most of the correspondence for him. Somehow, I feel, and this is personal, anybody is free to disagree with me, um, I feel that there's a conflict between what you're hearing, the, the text and the music. So I prefer Italian uh, to French. Now, uh, speaking of that monastery, the very beginning uh, is going to, you will hear a music that is almost atonal for Verdi. Now, it's not really atonal, but for the 1860s, it's very daring. This austere beginning puts us right in the mood of the monastery.
was Verdi the first composer to ever take four French horns and show you a grave? No. If those of you like Lucia di Lammermoor, the last act of Lucia di Lammermoor by Donizetti opens up in a grave with four horns illustrating that. And it's another great example to show how Verdi takes what is in a tradition and molds it in, in, in his own way. predominant minor key gives you a sense of the gravity of the drama that's about to open. And the first thing you will hear now is the mumbling of prayers. You hear the monks. to hear it. What they're singing will become a motive, and it will become the motive of the tomb of Charles V, and a metaphor, of course, for our own mortality. And then we hear the monk's voice. We don't see him. We hear him. Monk, Charles V, or Ghost. Whichever it is, is very impressive. So you know you're not going to hear a Rossini comedy when you hear that, right? It puts you in the mood. It puts you right in that monastery. And so I'm monk. And this becomes a second motive. Listen again to that. He's saying that the, the conflicts of our life on earth will never cease until we attain eternal life. Hear the trombones. The trombones are ecclesiastical instruments. They were from the time of Bach, and that this is an, uh, uh, almost an archaic use of them in the middle of the 19th century. Now then we're going to meet Don Carlo. He comes in and he, and he tells us the story of the act one that's no longer there. In other words, we're going to hear the story of Fontainebleau and you're going to understand it. Uh, and now we're going to get something different. Now we're going to meet Don Carlo, we're going to meet Don Rodrigo, or the Marquis of Proposal. We're going to see that they're friends and Don Carlo's going to tell him the story. I'm in a real mess. What's wrong? I love my mother. 
Well, it's not his mother, of course, but he's in love with Elisabetta. And then Polza says, there's only one thing for you to do. It's to get out of here. You are going to go to Flanders. Flanders is what is modern, modern Belgium, uh, the Netherlands, Luxembourg. And you're going to go there and you're going to help liberate the uh, people of Flanders. And Don Carlo uh, is very convinced by what uh, Rodrigo tells him. And they sing together, and you can feel the closeness of their friendship when they sing together. I'll start that again. They sing in thirds. We used to do that in, in elementary school. This will become a motive. It will be the motive of their friendship, and it will become the motive of liberation for the people of Flanders. So you're listening to, of course, one of the great Don Carlos of, the, of our time, Placido Domingo. But that's when he was a tenor, which he was for 40, 50 years. Now he's a baritone, so he's singing the lower part, not the upper part. Uh, and so, uh, but all of the recordings I chose, Placido Domingo is Don Carlo, because I want you to hear, um, I want you to hear him, because he was um, one of the great, great, great Don Carlos in his time. Now, once we're finished with the first act, we have a, uh, we have a, we have a moment of sunshine. And that moment of sunshine is outside of the monastery in the heat of the day, and we meet all the women of the court. We meet Eboli, the, one, the princess with the, one, the patch over her eye, and uh, she's amusing all the other people while the queen is inside the monastery with the king praying and being serious. They're having a good time. But you can hear the, how the... Immediately, the atmosphere changes. Brilliant, happy, optimistic, and a little bit Spanish. get an idea of the grace and the elegance of all these noble women. Now, Eboli, to amuse them, decides to sing a song. And what's the song called? It's called the Song of the Veil. Why is it called the Song of the Veil? Because um, it's a story um, about a king, a Moorish king, his name is Mohammed, and he has a date with a beautiful woman. And he goes out to meet this beautiful woman in the garden. And uh, she's covered by a veil. And by the end of the second verse, uh, she removes the veil. And who is it? None other than his wife. And he sings. He, he exclaims at the end of this. Well, why is this interesting? First of all, it's the story of the marriage of Figaro all over again. And second is we get a little bit of the Spanish-Moorish character of the times. Remember that this is only 50 years after uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, the, the so-called Reis Catholicos, the Catholic kings, king and queen of Spain, have uh, 
have uh, pushed out all of the Muslims and Jews from Spain uh, while they sent Columbus to discover America. Uh, that's what was going on. And so the, the deep cultural effect still of the Moorish influence and the Jewish influence is still to be found in a lot of the music. And she's going to sing this song, which is... Uh, often referred to as a Carmen moment, written before Carmen. So you see, this is, a, this is a lighter moment, but it has its significance. Now, after this, after this comes in Marquis de Poza, that's Placido, and he has a message for the queen. He's bringing it from France. Uh, and so he uh, distracts Eboli. Sorry. And now you'll hear this, this elegant music, a conversation, banter, court banter. He flatters Eboli. Eboli asks him questions. She flirts with him because she flirts with everybody. He is elegant and gives her polite answers. What is he really doing? He is protecting Elizabeth who's reading a letter for Don Carlo because in that letter it's going to say that Don Carlo wants to meet her. He desperately needs to talk to her. And so Marquis de Polza is being a good friend to Carlo and he's trying to help, help them do that. He will sing. He will sing beautifully about the great nature of Don Carlo. He's his advocate. Remember that his, the father, King Philip, disdains his son. But, but the pose is there to protect, protect his image and to speak for him to be his, his advocate. So he gets rid of Eboli. Carlo comes in. And the two are able to meet. Don Carlo tells Elizabeth how much he loves her. Elizabeth listens. She tries to keep control of the situation. Listen to this sublime music. That's Placido, of course. This motive is a memory of Fontainebleau. Now, while we're in this reverie of love, I just want to play something for you. Why did I do that? I wanted to show you where Verdi came from and where he is now in 1867. There are only 20 years that separate that particular piece, which is, uh, which is Joan of Arc, Giovanna d'Arco, and where Verdi is now. In other words, his development is extraordinary. If you go back to the big early operas, you will find that is a, char uh, a characteristic way he wrote, almost music for bands. And 
he was often criticized for that. But you see, he is in the process, not just of developing himself, but pushing the entire vocabulary of Italian opera to a new height. And of course, he will bring it to its, uh, its highest point, its zenith. And, like, and then you can go right back to this and listen to this sublime music. It is almost unbelievable that that is the same composer at the distance of 20 years. Another example. And of course it ends with a confrontation. He says, I'm going to die if you will not love me. She says, okay, then kill your father, drag me to the altar, if that's what you, if that's what you have in mind. She admonishes him to stop. And he's desperate. Now, what's going to happen in the next scene? There'll be a, there'll be a meeting in the garden uh, because Don Carlo's gone there thinking he's received a letter from Elizabeth to meet him in the garden. He's very happy. And it turns out to be Eboli, the lady with the one patch. Okay, that means she discovers that he loves the queen and she is going to portray him later in the opera by revealing that to the king. Now, we have a great finale in the beginning of the, at the first half, and that is a tradition the, it is in the form of, an, of what's called an auto da fe. This, is, uh, this was uh, a big political moment for the Inquisition and for the King of Spain to burn heretics at the stake in public. And that was, uh, they, they took place uh, at various times in Spanish history. Uh, the king organized them. He wanted to show all the other people, because he felt that he was the defender of the Roman Catholic Church, this is what we do to heretics. And so you're going to see an auto da fe in front of your eyes. And it fills all of the necessities that the French theater needed. It needed a scene where uh, you would have the, uh, everybody on stage, the entire chorus, splendid and big with uh, a historical moment. And it is, the, it is the middle of the opera. It is the middle of the opera, but it is not the high point of the opera. Because when you come back from after intermission, the opera really takes off you're going to hear one masterpiece after another. The last, the, the third and fourth acts of this are, should, are, are in the pantheon of the great acts of all of opera. You will hear the king's monologue, where the king, we see now not the tyrant, but we see the broken heart of the king. Uh, you will see his confrontation with the grand inquisitor. You will see his confrontation with his wife where he accuses her of adultery because he has found that she has a locket of Don Carlo in her private possessions. How did he come by that? Because Eboli gave it to him. And then when the, uh, the king, of course, uh, he humiliates her and she stands up for her own rights bravely because, she, of course, she is totally innocent. And then Eboli will come and beg forgiveness of the queen. And she said, I did something terrible. I told the king about, I stole the locket because I was in love with Don Carlo. And the queen, who's magnanimous at first, she said, you're in love with him? I understand. Stand up. It's okay. She says, no, no, I did something much worse. And she says, all right, what did you do? And she said, well, I accused you of adultery. What I have accused you of, I have myself committed with the king. Elizabeth does not like that. She says, give me your cross. 
You have to leave here tomorrow. You either go into a convent or you choose exile. And then Eboli is left alone to sing uh, what is probably the, the last great classic aria, which is built on the formula we all know, introduction, slow part, of uh, a bridge, and a fast part. But it, it does not at all resemble the famous cabalettas of the Rossini Donizetti. And she sings O Don Fatale, she, which means fatal gift. She curses her own beauty as having gotten her and others into trouble. She resolves to try to save Don Carlo. And so those, that act alone could stand by itself uh, without the rest of the opera. So once you come back from intermission, it goes like this. I would love to play it all for you, but you're going to hear it. The King's Aria in particular, which is character, in fact, if I will just do that before I let you go, because I think you need to hear this. Um, by the way, you will hear um, the band play in the... Uh, I neglected to mention to you that the band, or banda, was also a, a necessity in the Grand Opera, as it was in most of Italian opera. And the first man who conducted the band backstage was a man named Adolf Sax, and this is the man who invented the saxophone. He conducted the banda backstage for the premiere of Don Carlos in, uh, in Paris. Uh, Listen to these big, heavy uh, uh, this big heavy notes. This is a mode of Verdi uses all his life for tears. They're usually little tears. Here they're big tears because these are the tears of the King of Spain. And here three times three, symbolic. And then there will be a solo cello that will reveal the soul of Philip in his suffering. technical problem. I keep getting back to those big tears. Do you think you can remember those three notes? <laughs> You're going to hear them right after you come back from intermission and a lot more. I'm thankful for you all coming down so early and there'll be more. Enjoy the show. been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.